Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Wonderful book, Leap Over a Wall by Eugene Peterson, who you may recognize as the translator of the message uh, version of the Bible. Uh, Peterson shares a wonderful story about his Aunt Frida, and I'd like to share much of that with you to begin. He writes, there were two funeral homes in my hometown and one newspaper. Each afternoon, my Aunt Frida retrieved the newspaper from the lilac bushes at the side of her front porch. The paper boy, delivering the newspapers from his bicycle, aimed at the porch, but the momentum of the bicycle always carried the paper into the lilacs. He never did learn to compensate for his momentum. So my Aunt Frida had to maneuver around or into the lilacs to get the newspaper. She then brought the paper into the kitchen and spread it out on the dining room table, open to the obituaries on the next to last page. Pulling out a handkerchief that she kept tucked in her bosom, she dabbed tears from her eyes as she penciled into her calendar the scheduled time of each funeral. From my mother, I knew that my Aunt Frida attended every one of those funerals to a day, if she was lucky. She sat in the back row during the services and wept quietly but copiously. She knew neither the deceased men nor women for whom she mourned, nor any of the other mourners. Aunt Frida, Peterson writes, was a connoisseur of pure grief, grief uncontaminated by relationships or other emotions. She wept and laughed. As a child, Peterson continues, I never supposed that my Aunt Frida was anything other than normal. She loved and was faithful lifelong to her husband. She raised two children to sane and moral adulthood, was a whiz at crossword puzzles, and made great cookies. What more did she need to qualify as normal? Peterson then offers this insight. Maybe my Aunt Frida was more or less unconsciously making up for the widespread avoidance of grief in our culture by making a specialty of it. After the sudden death of her husband, when moments before they'd been enjoying a lovely dinner together at their home, The author, Joan Didion, wrote The Year of Magical Thinking. The memoir recounts how Didion spent the year following her husband's death, wading through her grief and denial. 
along the same lines as Peterson, Didion observes that our American way of dealing with grief seems to be nothing less than evasiveness posing as courage. Indeed, it often seems as if the ideal life proposed for us by our culture is one that is free from suffering, or at least buffered against its sting. And we have enough medication and excuses and activity to help us avoid pain and grief most of the time. As a pastor, I witnessed this avoidance of grief, this evasiveness posing as courage. Sometimes when people ask me to perform a memorial service for a loved one, many a time I am asked if I can find a way to keep the memorial service happy and upbeat. As if weeping tears of sorrow or joy would suggest a sign of weakness. And I have to say it feels worse yet when this request is, is covered in a veneer of sin and I would say immature Christian spirituality, something along these lines. Since we know that our loved one is in heaven with, with Jesus, why would we feel grief or sadness? In contrast, I believe that grief is the last act of love that we have to give to those we loved. Where there is deep grief, there was great love. But we are like those who, who lived in that time period that we now call the Victorian age. It was between the mid-1800s and early 1900s. And, and people living in that time, they could not even allow Shakespeare's tragedies to end as grimly as they did. And so they would change the endings whenever they staged a play. So in their happy version of Romeo and Juliet, the lovers suddenly recover. And not only that, they are reconciled. And not only that, their families are reconciled and everyone lives, and you can say this with me, happily ever after. In our reading this morning, Job's candor as he struggles with his dire circumstances stands in sharp contrast to our American way of grieving. Over the past two Sundays of our, our Weathering the Storm sermon series, we've explored two questions that come from the first two chapters of Job. From chapter one, the question is, what is the motivation for us having faith? And then the second question from chapter two, why suffering? And, and we've seen how Job, a man who is both uniquely righteous and fabulously blessed is tested by the sudden and utter destruction of all that his life had consisted of up to that point. I've pointed out each Sunday, and I'll mention it again, that Job is not meant to be read as a literal historical narrative. It's more like one of Jesus' parables 
Though at 42 chapters in length, it is a very long parable. And, and even as we know that, that Jesus' parables were, were fictions that he created to teach us lessons about God and faith, Job is just like that. Now, if the book of Job stopped, stopped where we read to just last week, we might could surmise that the oft-repeated phrase, the patience of Job, is an accurate appraisal of Job's response to the tragedies that were visited upon him. You might recall that after the first test, Job fell down and worshipped God. And then after the second test, when his, his wife actually invites him to curse God and die. We didn't read that last week, but that's what she says. And then Job responds to that suggestion with this question. Shall we accept the good from God and not the bad? Which rings with an air of both acceptance and piety. But when we read further, to what Job says, beginning in chapter 3, we start to see that Job is not all that patient with the hand that he has been dealt. And in chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, we hear Job emphatically cursing the day that he had been born. And then at the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, he says, Truly the thing I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but quiet, but trouble comes. Now that sure sounds like an authentic expression of grief, doesn't it? With these words, Job asks an anguished question, which I've asked myself, which I, I think we have all asked ourselves from time to time, why me? So that's a third question on top of the other two we've explored. When we look beyond Job and into the other scriptures, we begin to see that the Bible does not permit us to shroud our human grief, suffering, and anxieties with superficial or trite expressions of faith. 70% of the 150 Psalms are laments. Grieving God's apparent absence. From Job, from the book of Psalms, from a book in the Bible called Lamentations, we learn that our anguish and, and grief merit full and open expression. After the same manner of Jesus, when he comes to the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, in, in, Lazarus, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, Jesus shed tears. For a biblical people, grief is not to be avoided or gotten through as quickly as possible. Now next week, we're going to focus on some things we should not say in the midst of suffering, and we'll revisit the three friends that come to, to uh, console Job. 
But today I want to begin by inviting us to abandon saying this phrase. It must be part of God's plan. I just suggest that we might want to abandon that phrase. And, and I mentioned last Sunday about my trip to Rwanda, which I took a few years ago. And one of the young women I had a chance to speak with was then 20 years old. Her parents had died when she was uh, close to uh, 18. And Seraphine talked about trying to provide for her four younger siblings since her parents had died. And that she went and asked a farmer if she could work for food. And after a, a couple of times of working for this farmer, the man began to exploit her sexually, giving her 500 Rwandan francs each time. 500 Rwandan francs at the time was the equivalent of about 75 cents. When she ended up pregnant, the man told her that if she revealed him, who he was, to anyone, he would kill her. Now, I think of Seraphine whenever I need to hold back from saying the phrase, it must be part of God's plan. Indeed, as I read, read the Gospels, I have concluded just the opposite. And this is one major reason that I am a Christian. Because what I find in the story of Jesus is the truth that our suffering vexes God so much that God desperately wanted to do something about it and did through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because that is not God's plan. I believe an accurate description of the scriptural witness is this, that while suffering does exist in the world, suffering is not God's plan for any of us. Not for me, not for you, not for my daughter who is suffering from an incurable autoimmune condition, not from Seraphine, not for her four children and her own infant child. I think that child would be about five years old now, six years old. And because suffering is so much not God's plan for us, indeed because God hates our suffering, because God grieves our suffering, what God did was enter into it to bring us comfort and consolation and encouragement and healing, salvation to the fullest. Salvation is a word that comes from the word self. There is a balm in Jesus. This is why I believe that it is critically important that we begin to recover our capacity to grieve and grieve well. 
because it is just so that we open ourselves up to embrace the world that Jesus sends us out to embrace. Indeed, I cannot think of a more fundamental Christian affirmation than this, that God embraces the world and is willing to endure its pain and suffering and grief. That's what Jesus did in the incarnation. As another preacher has said, to have faith is to share in suffering, to weep as Jesus wept at the brokenness of what is meant to be whole. Jesus did not die in order to spare us the grief of a wounded creation. He died that we might begin to see those wounds as our own. So that Jesus, we would invite Jesus to heal those wounds. Now I want to close today by asking you to reflect prayerfully on a few questions. And what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you at home, wherever you are, close your eyes and just listen to these questions. And afterwards, I'm going to tell you if you want to get a copy of these questions to reflect on further, I'll tell you how to do that. But right now, just close your eyes because I want you to reflect on them further and just hear the questions. Am I able to grieve? Or do I try to avoid feelings of sorrow and grief? Where in my life do I have unresolved grief? A broken relationship, a betrayal, or another disappointment? Do I self-medicate in order to avoid feelings of grief and loss? Is my ability to grieve reserved for those who are closest to me? Or can I grieve for those beyond that inner circle? Is some anger that I feel a sign that I would rather get even instead of acknowledging my hurt and grief? Do I, can I believe that God wants to receive and heal my brokenness? Every brokenness. Would the lives of those I love be better if I found a way to process Childhood hurts, grief, or brokenness with a counselor. What step do I need to take 
in order to enlarge my capacity to grieve in the way that the Bible invites me to grieve. If you would like to ponder those questions more deeply, more fully, we can send them out to you via text message. If you're not getting our daily text messages, I think we have 80 or 90 plus people getting them now, um, you can just send an email to the church at stpaulsmethodist at gmail.com, stpaulsmethodist at gmail.com, along with your mobile phone number and your name, <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll get these questions out to you. And, uh, and then um, you can continue to get the daily text messages or unsubscribe at that point. But I want to close in prayer. I want to invite the band to join me uh, for our last song. But let us be in an attitude of prayer. Oh God, the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that there is a time to mourn. When Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who mourn. God, help us not to be those who ignore the grief and suffering and pain in the world around us, and, and certainly not our own, but help us, God, to invite you to become the healer of our souls. God, if there is anyone listening today who would invite you into their hearts this day to heal every brokenness, I ask that you would enter in by the power of your Holy Spirit and give them a sense of, of consolation and assurance that you would heal every brokenness. It may, God, not be, it will not almost certainly be an overnight transformation, but it will be the beginning of the transformation that you would work in each one of our lives as we strive to be authentic followers of your Son and our Savior, Jesus our Christ. Amen.